0: It's rapid fire on the virtual Bible study tonight. Boy, we got 12 questions. We got less than five minutes apiece to deal with each question. But we're going to talk about 12 of the most commonly asked Bible questions tonight. All right. And maybe there are some
1: questions you've been wondering about, or maybe they're just something that would be of interest to you. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about this. Get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual
2: Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And
1: welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, January twenty seventh, 2022. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight, my name is Jacob Gwyn. My father, Greg here. Hello, Dad. Great to be with you, Jacob. Good to be with you. Kyle is here. Hello, Kyle. Oh, it's good to be Welcome back.
3: Yeah. You're feeling yep. better. Yeah, all better.
1: And you're where you need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. We're of better hands there with you there. And we'd like to hear from you on the program tonight, 931-381-4567. It's the best way for your voice to be heard. If you're listening to us live tonight, you can uh, sign in the chat room with other listeners. Uh, there are people filing in the chat room there. Just sign in there. A little bit different look on the website tonight, so you uh, may have to sign in uh, again if it, if there may be some cookies that you lost there.
0: But uh, sign in and join in the program. Yeah. Uh, we're having a fella help us with our uh, website. Uh, we think that it had gotten pretty out of hand and uh, out, of date. out of date and kind of archaic. It was all stuff that I had patched together through the years. And so we've got a pro actually trying to clean that up and make it look better.
1: All right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it looks a little different. It looks better tonight. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to you joining in the chat room there. And, uh, as always, you can email questions
0: at College View at any time. Uh, Jacob, before we get into our topic for study tonight, I want to give everybody a heads up about a special event that we're going to have here at College View. We're calling it our Midwinter Gospel Meeting, and it's not this Saturday, but it's a week from this Saturday, Saturday and Sunday, February 5th and 6th. Okay. Stephen Trammell will be here to bring five lessons in less than 24 hours. So we're going to be at 4 and 7 on Saturday, okay. 4 in the afternoon, 7 in the evening, our normal time is Sunday morning, 9.30, 10.30, and 2.30 on Sunday afternoon. We're going to get okay. five lessons in less than 24 hours. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> We've got, we got an announcement for that on our homepage at collegeview.com. You can get the information there. But we just hope if you're within an easy driving distance of cl- uh, col- uh, Columbia, Tennessee, you'll come and visit us at College View on February 5th and 6th. Check it out on the new and improved
1: homepage at collegeview.com. It's right there in the middle. You can't miss it yeah yeah
0: okay uh, all right um all right so tonight so I got to looking uh at a website called got dot com well uh, that's a, that's is that a, because you had questions or you just happened to be looking at it well, I knew of this site in the past. It's yeah. a pretty well-traveled uh, internet site. I think they get a lot of traffic there. Because uh, everybody's got questions. The, the people, the people. They, basically, you got Bible questions, and they they give answers. The people who run that site are definitely Calvinistic. Uh And so we would not agree with a lot of the answers they give. But I found on their site an interesting link to the most commonly asked questions. In other words, they're a a website that fields questions from people on the Internet. And so they compiled what were their most frequently asked questions. And we've got 12 of them here that we want to go through tonight because I don't think their answers are all... Okay, a lot of them are wrong in fact. Okay. But we know the Bible has all the right answers and so you have got questions, the Bible's got answers and we're going to look to the Bible answers. Okay? All right. So we got to fly. Let's start right in with the first one. What does the Bible say about women pastors? Okay. Well, that's that's a that's a confused question to start with. It's a question that doesn't that, that probably the person's asking it don't even know what the word pastor means i imagine what they're asking is what does the bible say about women preachers or evangelists or evangelists i imagine that's what they mean the word pastor is a synonym with the word elder or bishop in the new testament and it describes an office in the new testament church uh, the, the overseers of local congregations are elders, pastors, or bishops. Mm-hmm. Uh, each, each We know every New Testament congregation is completely independent, autonomous, self-governing. Uh, no no organic ties to anybody else other than just the one local congregation. Each lo, local congregation is autonomous. And the ones who oversee it are the pastors. The, the qualifications for elders, pastors, bishops are stated in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, those are all men because, uh, for instance, in 1 Timothy 3, it plainly says uh, uh, that the elder must be the husband of one wife. So clearly there are not any women pastors authorized in the New Testament. But I really don't think that that's the question being asked. I think it's the question about women preachers. Uh, and, And again, the New Testament is pretty clear on that question as well, Jacob. Yeah, we could look over at first Timothy chapter two verse twelve for probably the most definitive
1: source on that uh first Timothy two verse twelve. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but be in silence. And so uh the teaching role is reserved for men in such a way that she would be usurping
0: authority or be teaching over a man. Yeah. And in first Corinthians fourteen thirty four let your women keep silence in the church, for it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. So that, this wouldn't be a very popular view in, in the present world, but that's what the
1: Scriptures plainly teach. the prohibition is not over against a woman teaching a man anything. Uh, those of us who are married uh, would have to certainly say that uh, our wives have taught us a lot. And, uh, our mothers taught us a lot and, uh, other women in our lives have taught us a lot. But it is that relationship that's mentioned there in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, uh, where, uh, she needs to be in subjection as she does that. And a woman preacher cannot maintain that position
0: in that role. That's right. That's right. So I think that's pretty straightforward. That's, that's probably not the answer that a lot of people would like to hear in our religious world today. Uh But I, I think the scripture is very plain on that. We'll go out to uh, Iowa to uh Dwight.
1: And he says the Bible actually says nothing about women pastors. But it does what it does say in First Timothy 1 verse 3 is this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must, must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober minded of good behavior, a hospital life to teach, etc. Note how it says if a man desires, then it says he desires. And finally, it says the husband of one wife. No room for here for uh error here. Uh, a pastor, bishop, elder, etc., cetera, it has to be a man who fulfills the qualifications listed so, in the So scripture.
0: Dwight was going specifically at the pastor, bishop, uh, elder, overseer uh, office. And again, clearly not for a woman. Dwight, it, okay. go ahead. Kent, Kent
1: in Calhoun, Georgia, says one must clearly define as to what one means by the term pastor. If by the term pastor one refers to elders, as the term is used in the New Testament, women serving in such a capacity is unauthorized by the scriptures. Is therefore sinful. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, and 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. If the term pastor is improperly used to refer to
0: preachers, 1 Timothy 2, one eleven and 12 also forbids women serving in such a role as well. Exactly right. Okay. So we're all on the same page on that. I don't think the whole religious world is on the same page with us about that, but... The Bible seems very clear. All right, let's move on. Number two, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it a sin? I was kind of watching our Facebook post today to see if we get censored for just actually having the word homosexual or homosexuality uh, in our update post. By the way, if you're not getting our updates, get on our update list by sending us an email at questions at collegeview.com. Say, add me to the list. Or... You can get on our Facebook page because we put it on our Facebook page every Thursday as well. Okay. Uh, so what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, you know, it, it's kind of, a, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, taken by the fact that these questions are asked because they're asking some questions that are pretty easy to find in the New Testament. Uh, they're straightforward. Uh, uh, one of the plainest Descriptions of homosexuality and and also condemnation of homosexuality is Romans chapter one.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: in Romans chapter one, beginning at verse twenty six, for this for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men have leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And so, again, a pretty plain description of what's under consideration. There's clearly talking about homosexuality, and it, it is condemned by God. Yeah, it's uh it's amazing. The the verses are very clear.
1: First Timothy chapter one verses nine and and ten. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured, person, perj- per, uh, perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. The idea there of the abusers themselves of mankind would encompass homosexuality. Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would
0: also tell us that. Verse six, I think you mean six, first Corinthians. First Corinthians six, six. Go yeah, ahead. Verse nine. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind. If you look at newer translations, I mean, I think that's pretty clear, in, even in the old King James. Newer translations make it even plain as talking about homosexuality. He says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. The people who engage in those sins are are condemned by God. They will not go to heaven. Now, that's not hate speech,
1: because there's also our heterosexual friends who are engaged in fornication and adultery. Uh, those who are covetous, which maybe even gets closer to home. Those are all equal sins. Uh, and what we're saying here is God's will is that we not be engaged in any of these sins uh and, and uh we need to make sure that we understand what God's will for us is.
0: Yeah, I I hope I hope that everybody understands. They should understand because we've addressed this subject many times on a uh, virtual Bible study. The sin of homosexuality is condemned, but it's a sin like any other sin. You can repent of that sin, you can gain forgiveness for that sin. Uh, it is this and, and and by the way, I don't know if everybody agrees with us about this. I think you and I, Jacob, agree that having a a homosexual urge or desire a temptation is not a sin temptation not a sin to act upon that sin to act upon that temptation is a sin and so you know here there may be this person who you know for whatever reason has some a man has attraction to men or a woman has attraction to women that's condemned in scripture if you practice in other words you're The temptation is not the sin, but the practice of it is a sin. And Christ mentions
1: uh, living an abstinent life uh, when uh, we are uh, in a position where that is required. In Matthew 19, verse 12, For there are some eunuchs who were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there are eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Uh, Jesus says that there may there, you may have to forego you may You're, have to live an abstinent life. You may have to forego your desires. Yeah, yes. But, and, and just because you have certain desires doesn't make you that no more than uh, having a desire uh, in a heterosexual manner makes
0: you a fornicator so, so, and adulterer. So here's a man who has a desire for women, but he can't practice that. He can't pursue that desire. He has to stay pure. So, uh,
1: yeah, again, not hot hate speeches. We're just speaking about what the Bible says. And how all of us are required to bring our lives in alignment with that. All of us have different challenges in different areas. And all of us have to make sacrifices in order to comply with what God's will is. And that's what we're talking about here. And Dwight says the Bible speaks plainly about homosexuality, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Leviticus 18 and 20 teaches us that it is an abomination to God. Leviticus 18, verse 22. uh, Leviticus uh, 20, verse 13. Um First Corinthians chapter six verse nine and ten as you read, uh says he says he concludes, Is it a, a sin? Absolutely
0: it is. And the version that he references there in First Corinthians six, nine and ten actually uses the word homosexuals and sodomites. And Kent draws the same conclusions from first
1: yeah. Corinthians six verse Now 9, I want to make a
0: note about what what uh Dwight he he referenced some Old Testament verses to condemn homosexuality, which I do that too, to show that God has always condemn the sin of homosexuality. But we have to go to the New Testament, and we and we can, and Dwight does there in First Corinthians 6, to show that it's a sin under the New Testament law. And that's going to be particularly of import in a couple of the subsequent questions we're going to talk about. You can't prove your point concretely using an Old Testament reference. You might support a conclusion. You might help yourselves lead to an opinion as to what God thinks of certain conduct. But you cannot... Press as law what the Old Testament says because it's not our law today. Um, Art says a woman is not to teach or have authority
1: over a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, also. So thank you, Art, for that. We missed that uh, on question number one. Brian says it resonates with me there in 1 Corinthians 5 where it says, and such were some of you, you can leave it behind and be sanctified or receive salvation. You mentioned you meant yeah. to reference First
0: Corinthians six. Yeah, that's that's actually First Corinthians six and verse eleven. Such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you are justified. So you, you, so you can come out of that sin. You know the the, the 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 liberal culture that we are in says that you can't. If you're homosexual, you can't not be a homosexual. You can't not be a, a practicing homosexual. You can't change from that to something else. And the Scripture says you can. All right. We're going to get a break, and when we get back, question number
1: three. This is an interesting one. What does the Bible say about tattoos? All right. We're going to get into that uh, right after this.
2: Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The Virtual Bible Study will be right back after this. Here's
1: a quick thought. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus 20 verse 12. Could it be said that you honor your father and your mother? There's great blessing in that and that is God's will for our lives. So determined to bring honor to them today and always and so be pleasing to your father in heaven. Seize the day.
0: Here's some quotes worth pondering. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. Forget injuries, never forget kindnesses. When the character of a man is not clear to you, look at his friends. Man, wish I'd said that.
2: Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program.
1: Back on the program tonight as we talk about the 12 most commonly asked Bible questions.
0: All right, we've got to move fast because we got 12 questions, and, and we're going to be able to spend less than five minutes on each one. But this one's actually pretty quick, although we might comment a little bit more. What does the Bible say about tattoos? In the New Testament, it doesn't say anything at all about tattoos. Okay, And we could leave it at that because, again, if we're going to prove our point we've got to use the new testament as to what god's law for us today is we've been we've been on that theme you know just constantly for years on the virtual bible study the verse that a lot of people want to go to in regards to tattoos is in the old testament leviticus 19 verse 28 Leviticus nineteen twenty eight says, "Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you." I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, that was those practices were apparently common among the pagans uh, in the land of Canaan that the Israelites were going to go in and drive out. <clears throat> God was going to use the Israelites to punish the pagan Canaanites, uh, and and apparently. Uh, among their practices were cuttings they would cut their bodies scar their bodies and print upon or we would say probably tattoo upon their bodies uh, different images now again that's old testament and uh, uh, we might draw we, we might say well it seems pretty clear that god didn't like that at that time that that was repulsive to him and he spoke of it in the law of moses but in the New Testament, there's no no parallel statement of any kind in the New Testament. Therefore, we would not be able to necessarily directly condemn tattooing of all sorts. However, I think that you could go a little bit further than that and say, you know, tattoos have, and I think it's changing somewhat, but tattoos have traditionally been associated with people who were sort of uh, rebellious in nature. They wanted to make a, a, a bold, brash, you know, statement. Uh, you know, they were sort of in your face with their tattoos. Uh, and I think that's still true to some extent. Uh, I don't know to what extent. As Christians, we would not want to be the kind of people who say, look at me. I'm, I'm flaunting cultural norms. I, I look, look at me. I want to show myself to be a, a rebel. Uh, I don't think we want to, I, I don't think that goes with letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is that with Matthew five sixteen.
1: All right, so it's going to be a, a judgment call here, but we've got to apply biblical principles uh, in our decision about this. What kind of image does it portray? And maybe that changes with the type of tattoo you get maybe you know yeah. maybe if i get skull and crossbones versus you're getting a, a daisy or something on your arm you know or an american flag or, or yeah mob can, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe you got to think about what it, that but you, you think about uh lots of things here and that's what kent says he says the scriptures do not explicitly address this issue however one must be guided by new testament principles regarding worldliness many tattoos violate these principles by advocating immorality and or rebellion to decency and proper respect for authority these type of tattoos would obviously be sinful. We need to give serious consideration as to what type of example we are placing before other individuals in tattoos that may appear to be innocent and non-offensive. Uh, okay, so he says use biblical principles. Again, we're going to get in areas of judgment here where you need to apply uh, your best judgment as to uh, how you can comply with the biblical principles that are set forth. Dwight says, the only verse I know about in the Bible about tattoos is Leviticus 19.28, where it says, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. This is an Old Testament passage. I'm not certain that it is sinful living under the New Testament. This has always been one of those questions I leave up to an individual. I've known of people who have had tattoos as a worldly person, became a Christian. Will having a tattoo keep them from going to heaven if they live faithfully? Open to learning more, he says. I think the question of that is no, Uh, Dwight. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's
0: right. All right. That's an interesting one. I thought, and isn't it interesting that it's in the list of most commonly asked questions? Uh, this big uh, uh, internet website, gotanswers.com, no, the, the 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 website is gotquestions.com, and they field Bible questions for me. We don't agree with their answers a lot of times, but, but it was interesting that they, because they get a lot of traffic, they compile a pretty good reference of commonly asked Bible questions, and that was one of them.
1: I've got an aversion to needles, so it's not really a question for me to really wonder about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'd like the process. All right, number four. What about once saved, always saved? Is eternal security biblical? Can a Christian lose salvation? All right. Boy, I mean, there's so much that can be said about that. I'm guessing this website was wrong on that. They were wrong on this answer. I'm gonna read I'm gonna read one passage that I think is so clear on this, and there's lots of them, but but one of them that I think is so dramatically clear is Second Peter two, beginning verse twenty. It says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, stop right there. That surely describes a saved person. They've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's a saved person. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. I mean, that clearly teaches that once saved, you can be lost.
1: So many passages. That so are many. just It's just a wasted space in our Bibles. But if it's not possible, why the warnings Paul was concerned about it? He said in verse 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified or become a castaway.
3: Paul, What's the deal?
0: Paul, of all people.
1: And yet he knew he could be lost. What's the deal here? Yeah. Why all these warnings? We could go on and on. I'm sure emailers have done that as well. Yeah. Uh, Dwight says, The Bible does not teach this theory of man once saved, always saved. People interpret the word of God to their own destruction. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Brethren, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to repent, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to an open flame or open shame. Uh, Not a biblical theory. And yes, a Christian can lose his soul. 2 Peter 2, verses 20 through 22. As you mentioned, uh, Kent says the doctrine of eternal security or the impossibility of apostasy is fatally false. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, 10, 26 through 31. 2 Peter 2, verse 14 and 20 through 22. You know, that's uh, you can tell a doctrine's validity by how those who uphold it interpret clear passages that would show that it's wrong. When you take a passage out of context, and you can find some that might give the indication that there would be eternal security if you looked at it in a certain way. But if you take that interpretation and you stand on that, then you have to tread all over all these other clear passages. If you're taking interpretation, if you hold to a doctrine that cannot be harmonized with other passages in the Bible, then you've got a problem on your hand. And those who hold to this doctrine have a clear problem on their hand because there are so many clear passages that teach that it's possible to lose your salvation. And we've got no vested interest in this. Uh, I, if I could, I would love that doctrine. I, yeah. would, I, would, sure. I would preach from yeah. the housetops. Absolutely. Um, but it's just not supported by the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Let's move on. Question number five. What does the Bible say about interracial marriage? Again, we want to look to the New Testament because that's our law to live by today. And in the New Testament, there's absolutely no No, nothing said about interracial marriage, nothing that would condemn it. Some people want to go back to the law of Moses again. Deuteronomy 7, uh, when the children of Israel were going to enter into the the land of promise, of course, pagan tribes were all occupying that place. and, And they were specifically warned about intermarrying with those pagan tribes that were in the land of Canaan because, and it actually ended up doing it, it would draw them away from the true God to worship these false idols. For instance, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughters thou shalt not give to his son, nor his daughters shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. We understand the context of that law and why it was given to the children of Israel, but that wasn't—that's not a law for us. And the New Testament just simply does not say anything about interracial marriage that would that would suggest that it's, that it's wrong in any way. All right, um, that's a that's a a racial prejudicial thing that has been for too long. It is, and it, and it does appear that in the
1: Old, even in the Old Testament, it was about not wanting to be led away spiritually, not that you would be somehow less Jewish. You know, even Christ had an interracial marriage in his uh, in his lineage with Ruth, right? She was a Moabite. She was a
0: Moabite, yeah. uh, um, uh, almost certainly converted to Judaism, but, but she came but from... She, but she wasn't... You know. uh, yeah, she wasn't a Jew, yeah, born, right. born a Jew. Yeah, yeah so... Let's see what our emailers said. Um, The Bible, this
1: is, uh, let's see, this is uh, Dwight. Uh, Nothing in the Bible uh, for us forbids different races to marry. Kent says, the scriptures do not address this subject of interracial marriage. We are given information regarding those authorized by God to enter into marriage. Those who are single, never having been previously married, individuals who have survived the death of a spouse, qualified individuals who have divorced their previous mates because of their former mate's fornication. There are also New Testament principles dealing with issues that need to be understood as to how to have a good marriage. There's no information given to us in the scriptures that one must limit their spouse to one's own race. There are perhaps a number of individuals in tracing their family ancestry who would discover that some were along their lineage, their ethnic background would somewhere along their lineage their ethnic background would indicate a different race being introduced
0: to their ancestors. Yeah, so what does that so? So, you know, be careful. You may be you may be talking about yourself there if you jump on this no interracial marriage bandwagon. Right. OK. All right. All right. Well, let's grab our us grab our bullet point break.
1: Uh, uh, Art in the chat room goes back. We we keep missing Art's comments here. He references the tattoos. He says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Would we write graffiti on the temple of God? Oh, but that's about
0: tattooing. I'm about the tattooing, yeah. That's just kind of an interesting way to look at it.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right, let's get a break and get this week's bullet point. We're back right after this.
0: After these
2: important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break.
0: This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. There are several different ways that we sometimes learn sensitive information about a brother or sister in Christ. It might be by something we have personally experienced, or we might be exposed to certain facts innocently via something inadvertently heard or seen. In other instances, someone might sinfully spread gossip that comes to our ears without invitation. This information may include that the brother or sister has done wrong. If so, we must act upon that information for the sake of our fellow Christian. We must go to him with the help that might save his eternal soul, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. If someone else has also sinned in the matter via gossip and so forth, then we must also address them. But sometimes the thing that is learned is sensitive. It might put a brother or sister in a bad light, but it is not inherently sinful. What should be done in such a case? In many, if not most, cases, such news should be allowed to die, and the sooner the better. Think about the numerous reasons why. If we love the one about whom the facts are being reported, then we will want to prevent any further potential harm to him or her. Since this is obviously the way we'd like to be treated, it is therefore the way we should act. Matthew 7, verse 12. We should also consider the person with whom we are tempted to share the news. If they are told, they also will have to think about the matter, deal with their own feelings about it, and potentially harbor negative feelings toward a fellow Christian unnecessarily. We could spare them all this if we just let the thing rest, and we should. Finally, love for God is reflected in our actions in such episodes. If we gladly report this kind of unfavorable information about a brother or sister, it indicates that we don't love them as we should. And that indicates that we don't love God like we should either, 1 John 4, verse 20. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. A
2: streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And
1: we're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at the new and improved collegeview.com. Now, Kyle, how's the YouTube going to fit into that new webpage? Have you got it figured out? Oh, I don't know. I don't, that's, you you uh, need to maybe no. work on that. You may need a feed. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think we're all I think the links are still there. The, the but link. you might want to feed on the homepage maybe with the latest sermon or something. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you you don't get don't don't get too technical on us okay. now.
3: Well tell us about how I find the Kyle's Kyle very uh, technical. I'll put a Java book under my pillow at night and we'll see if I can just <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about the feed in case we don't know where it is. Yeah, which on YouTube, uh College View Livestream. Uh it's a separate channel from the virtual Bible study. You just you can just type in College View, it should pop right up in your search bar there. So yeah, there's a massive amount of uh, resources on there. So it's all kinds of stuff. I'm getting those videos trimmed and stuff as uh, a yeah, along. so it's yeah, a lot of stuff on there.
0: You know, uh, we are very discoverable on the internet by virtue of college, com and all the content that's there and the virtual Bible com and all the content that is there. If anybody wants to find out what we believe, it's pretty easy to do so. Now, we're not timid about that. We, you know, somebody might come after us because of what we've taught. You know, if, if we get be labeled as guilty of hate speech, but hopefully we're not. There's no hatred here. We're just trying to teach what the Bible teaches. Uh, that's right. There is not. We're all sinners. We've
1: all we've all violated uh, the the instructions of God, and so no one has any ground to throw. A dirt at someone else on, uh, but we are inc- encouraging us all to submit to God's will. We're talking about the top, most commonly qu- asked questions, top 12, and we're only at number,
0: number five. S- we're ready for number six. Okay, Number six, who was Cain's wife? Mm-hmm. Again, it's kind of interesting that some of these questions, they, there aren't any answers to them. And there's some questions that really don't buy you anything if you did know the answer. Yeah, Cain... Uh, uh, almost well, without doubt, Cain's wife had to have been taken from some near relative of his, because <clears throat> you know some people have the mistaken idea that God made Adam and Eve, but He made a whole bunch of other couples as well. He did not. He made one man, one woman, and Eve they, is the mother of all living. Uh, for, yes, exactly. The verse I was going to go to Genesis three, verse twenty. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so uh Cain's wife had to have come from some near relative of his. We don't know. It doesn't say, the Bible say we don't need to know. You know, if that offends anybody, understand there were, first of all, there were no laws against incest in that time. And also that because the human gene pool would have been absolutely pure in those early generations... The, the, the idea of near relatives marrying and reproducing today, it would be very dangerous because of potential genetic foul ups. But in that day, it was not. Uh, and so if that's just, we, uh, again, we don't know, we don't need to know, but you, you would have to conclude from the available information that lots wife came from some near relative of his. Kent says, we do not know her
1: name or identity, but she had to have
0: been one of Cain's relatives.
1: And, uh, Dwight says the only verse I know, have known about Cain's wife is Genesis four verse seventeen. The scriptures don't tell us if it was his sister, niece, etc. It is a question which is truly and unanswerable. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says the secret things belong to our Lord, the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of, the, of this law. I like Dwight's reference there to Deuteronomy twenty nine verse twenty nine. There's some things, some areas where you just have to leave it to God and don't uh, don't start
0: uh, getting all worked up about it. Okay. Quickly, number seven, what is the Christian view of suicide? I don't like that question. It doesn't matter what the Christian view of suicide is. The the question is, what does the Bible say about suicide? And that's how that. that The idea uh,
1: here being that you just would go with what the but so-called Christian community accepts, and, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Everybody else believes this, so I will, too.
0: No, Yeah, that's, that's a faulty way of reasoning. But the follow-up question was, what does the Bible say about suicide, and what about a believer who commits suicide? Well, the Bible actually does identify suicide. In fact, there are a number of cases of suicide that are, are listed uh, in both the Old and New Testament. I think maybe, I'd be willing to go out on a limb here and say probably the most famous episode of, of suicide was that of Judas Iscariot, the mm-hmm. one who, who betrayed Jesus and then went out and hanged himself. Uh, and so Judas was a famous person who committed suicide in the New Testament. Uh, suicide by definition is self-murder, the taking of life. Uh, and I would argue that you could, all the Bible verses that condemn murder would condemn self-murder. Now, I think you've got to be really careful in trying to make an eternal judgment on this question, because I, I would think that a huge majority of people who do commit suicide have some kind of incredibly bad mental problems going on, and the question would be reasonably raised, would such a person be accountable? Well... I'm glad and totally happy to leave that in the hands of God and let God decide whether they were accountable in the action that they took or not. We don't have to make that judgment.
1: That's what Dwight says. Suicide is nothing more than murder of oneself. Murder of any sort is forbidden. However, I will say there are some people who commit suicide that may not be in their right mind. I will let God be their judge. And uh, Mohan up in Illinois chimed in. He said, killing is wrong even oneself. A believer who commits suicide may not have been in his right mind when committing the act, so God will view it as a disability. However, I would question someone who is in their right mind and planned out the suicide.
0: Yeah, and, and so again, we just got to leave that in the hands of a just God to make that eternal determination.
1: But uh, yes, yeah, certainly if, if, it's, if, if, if I'm
0: cognizant of uh, what
1: I'm doing, uh, I am committing murder. Uh, Kent says uh, the unjustified taking of human life is sinful. Matthew twelve five twenty one, 21, Galatians 5:19 and 21 through 21. The case being that suicide is the unjustified taking of one's own life. Such would be murder and therefore sinful. The only exception to this rule would be if one, because of no fault of their own, had lost their personal accountability. Such a person would not be responsible for their own actions. It may also be that some, at some earlier time they were accountable and responsible for their own actions and will be judged accordingly for their earlier accountability, but due to the situations beyond their control have lost their accountability. In other situations, it may be either impossible or very difficult to ascertain all the facts of a given situation. In such circumstances, we need to be content to leave all such judgment to God, who will judge all individuals righteously. He has the final judgment in all of our lives anyway. Exactly right. I think that's the right
0: answer. You got to go with that. All right. Number eight. Number eight. What happens after death? Oh boy. That's a great question. And I think that's a reasonable question to have. So I'm at the point of death. What's going to happen when I, when, when I slip away, when I die? When I, you know, we sometimes use all kinds of uh, terminology. What happens when I cross over to the other side? Oh, so, I thought you were going to use some other <laughs> slang terms there. Kick the bucket. <laughs> kick in. the bucket. Uh, Buy the farm. Buy the farm. Fight yeah. uh, the big one. <laughs> the best picture of what happens when we die is in Luke chapter sixteen. We've referenced this many times on the virtual Bible study. The story of the of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. Two men died. When they died, they were taken, their spirits were taken to Hades. Mm-hmm. Hades is not hell. There's a difference between Hades and hell. Hades is the realm of departed spirits. It's where spirits go. The, the biblical definition of death is when the spirit departs the body. That's when you die physically. Mm-hmm. Your body, of course, decays and goes back to the elements from which it is made. Your spirit goes to Hades to await the final ju- resurrection and judgment. Right. In Hades, there are two parts. There's a place called comfort or paradise. There's In Luke 16, it's called Abraham's bosom. Uh, and, and so the righteous dead go to a place of comfort to await the, the call of the final resurrection and judgment. The evil people go to a place of torment. The rich man in that story went to a place of torment. He was tormented in flames. He begged for just a drip of water to be placed on his tongue. He was in such torment. <clears throat> and so in Hades where spirits go to await the final call of resurrection and judgment. In Hades, there's 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 a place of comfort, there's a place of torment. Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's another word to describe that place of comfort in Hades. Uh, and so uh, that's what happens when we die. The, the fact of the matter, though, is in that Luke 16 story, when when the rich man asked just just send Lazarus down here to put a drop of water on my tongue abraham said man it, it can't happen there's a great gulf fixed between we can't come to you you can't come to us and so what we learn from that is that our eternal destiny is is sealed and settled when we die and so when you when you die you'll be able to know immediately what your eternal state will be although final judgment hasn't taken place yet If you're in a place of torment, you'll know how it's going to turn out for you eternally. On the other hand, if you're in a place of comfort, you will know. Yeah, it's important to look at this and see what the Scriptures teach
1: about this idea because it is very common when someone does pass away uh, to say, well, they're in heaven now, or they went to be with Jesus in heaven. Um, That's not accurate according to the, the story there of the rich man and Lazarus and other passages. That's not the only passage we can look at. In Revelation chapter 20, in the final judgment, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Verse thirteen of Revelation twenty. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead, death that and de- Hades, that should, that should be, be Hades, Hades, which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And so, Hades, the realm that you mentioned there, that we learned about in the story of rich man and, La- and the rich man and Lazarus. They give up their debt at the final judgment. In other words, we stay there until the final judgment. And after that judgment is done, verse 14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So they're destroyed. There is no more death. There's no more Hades after the final judgment. It's eternity.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Jesus said in John 5, verse 28, Marvel not this, for the hour is coming in the which that all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good into the resurrection of life and they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. So there's Jesus saying there's going to be a a great resurrection of all the dead at the last time, in the last day, in the final judgment. All of the dead will be resurrected and then be assigned eternally to either heaven or hell. Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you shall be
1: with me in paradise. Same language we learned about in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he was not left there in Acts chapter 2 verse 31. And he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Jesus went to Hades, but he didn't stay there. So when he was
0: resurrected, when he was resurrected, he came forth out of Hades.
1: Just as we will, but we'll stay there until the final resurrection. Exactly. Okay. All right. Let's grab our last break. Wait a minute. We got that's listeners. Oh, 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 Kent yeah, yeah. says the soul of those departed into in death go to into the keeping of God to await final judgment and their final assignments in eternity, in either heaven or eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And um, Dwight says after death the body goes back to the ground where it came and the soul goes to Hades to await judgment. Ecclesiastes twelve or seven. The dust then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Luke 16, 22 through 23, talking man about the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, okay, that's New, let's go on. When we get back. When we get back, we're going to talk about tithing. And what we're about, almost on track to get done. What about tithing? We're going fast after this. Stay tuned.
2: We're back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages
3: are you sure that the bible said something but you just don't
0: know where is your salvation based on a passage that you know is in the bible but when asked
3: you couldn't find it do you do things in worship but you couldn't turn to a book chapter and verse to show that god wants you to do it if you answered yes to any of these questions you may be suffering from bdd bible deficit disorder god said my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge
0: the college view church of christ is dedicated to overcoming bible deficit disorder in the metro area by teaching the bible the whole bible and nothing but the bible you're invited to attend our worship services on sunday at 9:30 a.m. and 6 p.m. join us in the fight against bible deficit disorder attend one of our services for a healthy dose of the bible that's at the college view church of christ please don't give in to bible deficit disorder We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. For the second year in a row, abortions have been the leading cause of death worldwide, with more than three times as many people losing their lives to abortion than the second leading cause of death. Approximately 42.6 million abortions were performed worldwide in 2021. By contrast, only 13 million people perished of communicable diseases, the second leading cause of death last year. The other leading causes of death paled in comparison to abortion, with 8.2 million people dying of cancer worldwide, nearly 5 million deaths caused by smoking, approximately 2.5 million alcohol-related deaths, nearly 1.7 million people succumbing to HIV-AIDS, more than 1.3 million people dying in traffic accidents, and nearly 1.1 million suicides worldwide. That information is via the Christian Post. The Word of God says in Proverbs 6, beginning verse 16, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers.
2: Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. We're
1: back on the program tonight, going to the top of the hour, looking at 12 of the most commonly asked Bible questions.
0: Again, if you're just joining us, we, there's a website uh, called gotquestions.com. It's a, it's a pretty well-known website. It gets lots of traffic. We don't agree with their answers. They, they give Calvinistic answers to a lot of questions, but... It's just we're just using them as a data compiler here. They they because they get a lot of traffic, they field a lot of questions and they have compiled what are some of their most commonly asked questions. And that, And we're just doing a rapid fire analysis of them tonight. Mm-hmm. Number nine on our list is what does the Bible say about Christian tithing? Should a Christian tithe? Well, again, tithing is taught in the Bible, was taught in the Old Testament. The idea of a tithe was to give 10%. And under the law of Moses, the, and actually, it, the practice even predated the law of Moses. We know that Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe, a 10% of the spoils he'd brought from battle. Uh, so uh, it was an Old Testament practice. It was it was encoded in the law of Moses. You give ten percent of whatever you make. If you get whatever, a hundred bushels of corn, you give ten bushels of corn. So whatever you gave a tenth, you give ten percent. It was clearly taught in the Old Testament. It is never taught in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament teaches that we are uh, to give as prospered. First Corinthians sixteen uh Verse two, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Second Corinthians chapter nine. Verse seven, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And so those are the principles set forth in the New Testament. I really like, and I've mentioned this on the virtual Bible study before, I like what the old preacher said when he was asked, do we have to, do we have to tithe? Do we have to give a tithe? And the old preacher said, oh no, absolutely not you can give a whole lot more. (laughs) Because I think what people are often looking for is, well, man, if I don't have to do the 10% thing, I can can do less. Actually, we can do more. But, you know, I would actually, again, use this Old Testament information as sort of a baseline. What did God expect of the Jews? 10%. What would he expect of us, who, by the way, live under a better covenant with better promises and blessings? Why would we think that 10% is an outrageous starting place for our giving considerations it's not we we, we, it's not bound upon us we can't bind tithing but there is a concept there that's worth considering and uh while we're talking about it let's talk about
1: the purpose of heart here too because uh we need to be mindful of this it doesn't just need to be a flat percent and i just don't even think about it we need to be thinking about how we've been prospered and how we can give generously
0: yeah uh, Kent says, and uh, Kent mentions this: First Corinthians sixteen one and two, as well as Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine. Instruct us to give as we've been prospered willingly, generously from our abundance. The concept of tithing as practiced among the Protestant denominations is almost a religious tax levied upon their members, such as without New Testament authority. However, in consideration of all the material and spiritual blessings enjoyed by Christians, a great many of us can and should use the concept of 10% as a baseline to determine how much we should give to the Lord. If we use that basis to determine our giving, many of us can afford to give above 10% of our gross income. I think that's a good way to say it, Kent.
1: There we go. Tithe, uh, Dwight says tithing is uh, giving 10%. This is an Old Testament law. In the New Testament it is not wrong to use 10% as a baseline. But we cannot force enforce it as a, a command from God because the New Testament tells us how to give. First Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Also in 2 Corinthians, second, Corinthians nine. 9, 6 and 7 it says to give uh, generously. Uh, one needs to choose for themselves how much they will give
0: according to how they have been prospered. Exactly right. We've got to go fast now. We're going to run out of time. What's the importance of Christian baptism? Number 10. What's the importance of Christian baptism? Well, I think I could offer one verse that I think very plainly answers that. Hit me. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. 1 Peter 3, says, The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Okay. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer for good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus okay, Christ.
1: Back to what we said earlier, whatever your answer is about the importance of baptism, you can't walk all over that passage in 1 Peter 3.21, Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16. 16, uh, you have to harmonize your position. And the only way you can harmonize it is by saying that baptism is required for salvation.
0: Jesus at Mark sixteen sixteen that you mentioned, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. All right. There it is. I mean, uh, uh, and again, if you have questions about that, and it, it's, uh, it, this is an important question. This is a really, this is a way more important question, Jacob, than who was Cain's wife. Yeah, really. But if you have that question there's lots of information available, and use the virtual Bible study, the the archives of the virtual Bible study. We've got tons of information. Many programs dealing with baptism. Search it out. The the, the scriptures are very plain on that question. Were these questions in order of of how? No, they, oh, I don't good. think so. I
1: I'm, I hope that Cain's wife and tattoos did not preempt baptism. <laughs> um, but Dwight says, without baptism, you do not come into contact with the blood of Christ. you cannot be saved without having your sins washed away in baptism. Baptism also doth now save you first peter three twenty one um, and so and and uh, okay, yeah, so he uh, says we have to ha- be baptized. Kent says New Testament baptism, along with faith in Christ, repentance of sin and confession of Christ is the culminating act of obedience wherein we receive forgiveness or remission of all past alien sins that are brought into the fellowship of the New Testament church. Acts 2.38 and verse 47, 1 Corinthians 12.13.
0: All right. Moving on quickly, question number 11. What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? Again, I'm going to offer one verse. Jacob, you've converted me to this verse as, a, as the main go-to in the question of drinking mm-hmm. at any level. First Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh uh, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, and that word there, sober, in the, there's there's different Greek words that are translated sober in the New Testament, but this word, be sober, literally means free from the influence of intoxicants. Yeah. And to be free from the influence of intoxicants means you can't have any in you at all because all authorities suggest as soon as you take the first sip of alcohol, your body is influenced or impaired by it. All right. Um Kent says, One needs to properly
1: understand the nature of drunkenness, which is condemned by the Scriptures. Drunkenness is accompanied by degree. It alters the mind and limits the proper reaction of the physical body. Drunkenness is clearly condemned as being sinful in Galatians 5.21. In consideration of the degree factor involved in the aspect of the sin, even the moderate recreational usage of alcohol is wrong, such as is such as drug abuse. The only... Exception to this would be the usage of alcohol as a legitimate medication. 1 Timothy five twenty three. Paul in told
0: New- Timothy take a little wine for their stomachs. The New I Testament term- Greek
1: term in this uh, passage is oinos, which could mean either fermented or unfermented grape juice. Uh, the contextual use of the word determines the way in which such uh, the way such is used in the passage. The drinking of unfermented grape juice was a standard beverage in the New Testament times. Paul would not be instructing Timothy to accomplish something he was already accustomed to doing. Such implies that he needed to use this beverage as a medicine to make use of something he was not already doing and to use only a small amount. First, I mean, 523 does not authorize the moderate use of alcohol for social and or recreational purposes. Okay. And I I know we're short on time, but that Kent mentions the fact that drunkenness is expressly listed as a sin that will send you to hell. Is there any sin in the Bible that God would condemns that is on a sliding scale?
0: That no oh, one can
1: really tell where you
0: 're drunk I'm going to do a little fornication, not a lot, or i'm going to do a little stealing I'm not going to steal more than a thousand dollars at a time
1: yeah well well and and states can't agree on what the blood alcohol level is where you are impaired people who who drink say well you'll know when you get drunk, how do I know when And if I do know, then I've already sinned. So how do I know how much I can drink without getting drunk? Is there anything in the Bible that God says, this is a sin, don't do it? Well, I've got to, I've got to sin first so I know where my limits are. Yeah. It it doesn't make any sense. And so they're saying, well, you can drink, but you can't get drunk. There are all kinds of problems with our argument. For one, it doesn't line up with the clear teachings where we have to be sober.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So again, no drinking at all. Uh, I think I should have done it this week. Maybe in next week's bullet point, I'll I'll mention that new studies are saying that even drinking, even the slightest amounts of alcohol are harmful to the physical body. That's another argument against drinking alcohol is that it's harmful to the body and we're supposed to protect uh, our physical bodies. All right. Number 12. Finally, number 12. What does the Bible say about gambling? Is gambling a sin? You know, the Bible never uses the word gamble. Gamble uh but it sets forth principles whereby we would determine that yes gambling is a sin uh there's a number of arguments that can be made one one argument about gambling is that it's addictive and in first Corinthians chapter six verse twelve Paul said that he would not allow himself to be brought under the mastery of anything, and neither should we you know you you hear the ads on the radio for the for the lottery, and at the end of the ad there's always Problem gamblers call such and such, you know. Even the people who are promoting gambling, uh, sports betting, the sports, sports betting is crazy. And they're doing the same things. At the end of their ads, they'll say, if you have a problem, gambling problem, call these counselors. So they, they understand that it's an addictive concept, but it's covetousness. What drives it is covetousness. Covetousness self is a sin. It is, it is, in other words, if, if we gamble, then the reason I want to win to take from you what is yours. In other words, my desire is to to harm you by way of winning what is yours.
1: That's what Mohan said. He said, we are stealing money from someone else if we win in gambling, and it shows we have a love for money when we gamble, so what's wrong? I think Mohan sort of just broke it down for us there. Yeah. I appreciate that, Mohan. Uh, Kent says gambling is sinful. It is sinful because it destroys one's work ethic. Ephesians 4:28. gambling is sinful because it destroys the principle of love for our fellow man and putting our own selfishness above concern for others and promoting covetousness. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3 gambling is sinful because it is addictive. First Corinthians 6, verse 12 gambling is sinful because it is destructive of the home. Ephesians 5:25 and 6, verse 4. Gambling is sinful because it is destructive of one's ability to financially care for oneself. Take note of all the lotto tickets purchased at convenience stores and the misery found at Las Vegas such would not would such would fit the category of
0: sins of the such like in Galatians chapter five verse twenty yeah all right It's been argued that there's three ways the bible the, the Bible authorizes three ways by which to to make gain uh, you can work earn you can receive a gift from someone or you can buy sell and trade but those are the only three ways that the the, the scriptures authorize the only three authorized ways of making financial gain gambling is not one of them dwight
1: says along with gambling we need to realize even school raffles are wrong now uh, Dwight makes an important point there. If the principle of gambling is wrong, it's wrong in every. It's form. not a
0: matter of degree. No, we're just or it should it if it supports a, a charity or a just cause? Yeah, it, it, uh, the matter of degree doesn't change the principle. If it's wrong, it's wrong. All right, Kyle, we made it. Thoughts from you tonight?
3: Well, yeah, that's a. What's I think if you search for any Bible question, just in general, usually that got questions comes up, and do you have? They, you have to make sure you filter it through the word of through the word. So make sure that you're well versed and don't just use the God questions as your only resource for uh, Bible knowledge. So make sure you're reading our Bibles. These are excellent questions, so.
1: Yeah, Art says bingo. I don't know if he agrees with what we said or if bingo is wrong. Bingo
0: is would... a form of gamble. Okay, right. Uh, well, that you know, is it bingo. If you're, no, no. Buy, if yeah. you're buy, you know, if, you're if you if you go to the bingo yeah. Yeah. contest and you buy your bingo card then you're entering into effectively a gambling lottery right now if, if you're just playing bingo for fun and you're not having to pay to enter enter it that's different but but the bingo like the catholic church has bingo night and it's gambling okay
1: um Kyle, thank you for being yeah, here helping be us badge your back. And, uh, Dad, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Enjoyed being with you. Enjoyed uh, our study together tonight. Hope you benefited from it. And we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.